Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The Army plans to cut its end strength by 24,000 troops. Now, some of those cuts will come from special operations, but the Army plans to add troops to support air and missile defense units. Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis is joining me to break it all down for us. Anastasia, let's begin with why they're cutting forces by 24,000. First of all, it's important to know that any of this will affect active duty soldiers. And what the service is trying to do, it's trying to get rid of positions that are already empty or they're unfilled and they just don't need them anymore. This is just a part of a broader effort to move away from a force structure that was designed to conduct counterterrorism missions and towards being able to support large-scale combat operations. Here's Army Secretary Christine Wormuth. We're moving away from counterterrorism and counterinsurgency. We want to be postured for large-scale combat operations. So we looked at, you know, where were there pieces of force structure that were probably more associated with counterinsurgency, for example, that we don't need anymore. Yeah, she said counterinsurgency. Any other specific areas of the force they think they can get away with reducing? Yes. Some cuts will come from special operation forces, and the officials identified 3,000 positions that can be eliminated. Those positions, historically, they've been hard to fill, and they just don't need them anymore, like print media or psyops. They're also relocating their engineers. Basically, counterinsurgency-based engineer force structure assigns engineers to brigade combat teams, and the Army will relocate those engineers to the division echelon. The move will reduce 10,000 spots, and it will also give more flexibility to division and corps commanders to deploy their engineer assets during large-scale combat operations. Here's Army Secretary again. As we move to the division as a unit of action and put a lot of emphasis on corps and division capabilities, that meant we could thin out, if you will, some MOSs at the brigade level. Kind of went through all of these different ways to try to thin out our force structure, but I would say we briefed extensively on the Hill, all of our oversight committees, many of members who were specifically affected, and generally I think there's a good understanding from members of Congress about what we're doing, why we need to do it. So I I think we're in a pretty good place on that force structure transformation. The Army Secretary also talked about it in the context of recruiting. The other piece of total Army analysis is because of the recruiting challenges we've been having, our end strength has decreased notably. And we, the chief and I, did not want to have a lot of hollow structure hanging around. You know, that's essentially unready structure. So we needed to basically reduce 32,000 spaces to, to both shrink overstructure and make room for that 7,500 of new structure. That's an interesting way of putting it. They couldn't fill the billets because they can't recruit enough people. So therefore, since they had these empty billets, they're getting rid of them as if they don't need them. I guess I have to take her at her word, Anastasia. But the other thing she said that caught my ear there is she's talking about their division structure. So it sounds like they're reversing what's been 20 years of building out the brigade structure, specifically to be more nimble with smaller brigades, going back to the almost the post-war division era. Fair to say? Yes, definitely. About 10,000 additional cuts will actually come from the inactivation of cavalry squadrons within striker brigade combat teams and infantry brigade combat teams. 
Some of the cuts will also come from conversion of infantry brigade combat team weapons companies to platoons. Some of those reductions will also come from eliminations of some positions within security force assistance brigades. But at the same time, the service will add about 7,500 troops to support air and missile defense at the core and division levels. I think at one time they called that robbing Peter to pay Paul, but that's not the only reductions here and additions there that they are planning, correct? That is correct. They are also planning on adding five multi-domain task forces. Those task forces will provide the Army with better intelligence, cyber, long-range fire capabilities all over the world. They're planning on assigning three task forces to the U.S. Army Pacific. Task force will be assigned to the Army Europe Africa, and the service will also retain another task force with a focus on uh, on the Central Command's area of responsibility. Here's Secretary Wormuth again. In my view, this is also about the Army transforming. You know, we are transforming our force structure, we are transforming our weapon systems through our modernization programs. And what we've done through the force structure changes is make room for some new formations like multi-domain task forces, but also like, you know, directed energy MSHORAD, for example. That was about seven and a half thousand spaces that we needed to make room for inside of our force structure. Well, directed energy they've been talking about for 20 years, too. And I'm surprised she didn't bring up hypersonics. She didn't. <laughs> all right. And again, the context of all this is a annual now has become shortfall in its recruiting goals. Yes. Currently, the Army is designed to accommodate almost 500,000 soldiers, but also at the same time, it's dealing with recruitment challenges. In fiscal 2022, the Army missed its recruitment goal by 15,000 soldiers. It's still struggling. They're making a big shift in how they recruit soldiers. So, for example, they have a professional recruiting workforce. Those warrant officers are going to be, it's going to be their job to recruit. At the same time, initiatives like the soldier referral program, they also have the future soldier prep course. Those efforts have brought in about 15,000 soldiers since 2022. Well, we hope for the best for the Army. Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. 
and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the the behaviors that we allow and we, uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, 
This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role 
with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to it probably won't so by building programs including leadership development programs including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs that's what's really key for i think for our agency and particularly me in this role um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role, and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role so I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, 
Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.